Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 19 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, how you doing? Welcome to the show and thank you for tuning in as always every week. I love you for that and thank you so much for all your feedback on the announcement last week that I'm leaving my flying career and going into my coaching business full time and also running this podcast full time which I'm so excited about and I put a video up on Facebook on my personal Facebook page which you can see if you haven't already, facebook.com slash nathan.seaward about the reasons that I'm leaving flying and expanding on uh, a few of those had about three and a half thousand views so uh it obviously struck a chord with a few people and thank you so much for all of you that have messaged me and written comments and emailed me and uh called me and given me messages of support uh it's been overwhelmingly positive and i just feel so so supported as i go into this new chapter of my life so thank you so much for that i get to continue the conversation this week because i have uh, one of my great friends adam quiney on the show adam is a lawyer turned executive coach and when we first met uh, we immediately hit it off adam has a, a razor sharp wit that i just enjoy so much and we had so many amazing uh chats laughs conversations but what we realized is there is so much commonality between the legal profession and the flying profession and the problems that they face as uh, effectively high-achieving professionals, I guess you would say. So we immediately decided we needed to have a podcast and just uh, shoot the shit and discuss some of those issues. So if you're in flying, if you're in uh, law in any way, this episode's for you. We talk about some of the challenges that you face. It's pretty candid. Uh, you won't agree with everything that I say and what Adam says, but uh, it'll certainly get you thinking about your position in your firm or in your airline and you know where you're going and uh, maybe how to find more joy or more happiness or maybe even find uh, something that suits you more, a different career outside of those industries. Whatever, take from it what you will, but it's a really great conversation. Adam grew up in Victoria, which is an island uh, west of Vancouver in British Columbia, and he tells us uh, a little bit about his upbringing before we dive into um, talking about the differences between law and flying and some of the similarities. I had a lot of fun with Adam. Uh, I feel as time goes on, I get more and more comfortable in the podcast and you might feel like a little bit more of my personality shine through and a little bit more fun coming through in this one as well. It's one of my favorite episodes and I really hope you enjoy it. So enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Adam Quiney. <laughs> Lots of good stuff, but the phrase that really sticks in my mind is you better work hard. So always, no matter what, I remember hearing you better work hard. Uh, You better work hard. You better work hard. Make sure you're working hard. Good grades, but work harder over here where you didn't get the outstanding. You got the good. And Asian parents. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> I think like maybe pseudo, maybe my name is spelled like, cause Kwaini kind of sounds a little oh, bit yeah. Asian in some capacity, but definitely that same kind of cultural, um, I don't know. Everyone grows up in, in their culture and a culture has a context. The context in my family was definitely one of you need to work hard. That is really, that's the utmost importance is to work hard. Mm. So give me some background to that. Where did, where did that come from, from your parents? Yeah, sure. So my my dad was born in 1943 in England. So straight out of the war ending, mm. or kind of mid, I guess, 
mid. I don't know the war too well that way. But like very much, um, we need to buckle down. You need to be hard. Make sure you've got some security because nothing is secure. And then my mom grew up in rural Canada from like in a uh, farming family. So my grandfather on her side was a actually a Unitarian preacher and then a farmer. And she was one of three siblings. So again, very like modest, work hard, salt of the earth kind of approach to moving forward and not one of like pursue your dreams or take big risks. It was more like pursue your dreams, but first build 10 safety nets. So how did that, how did that define your childhood? Do you remember your childhood being fun or is it, is it a memory of stress? And kind of exactly like that. Like we, we, it was both, right? So it was um, definitely fun. Definitely, it's not like we didn't do cool stuff because we worked hard so that we could then go on a cool vacation or something like that. But the thing I remember the most is how you better work hard. I'd hear that even when I was working hard. So it was like, great job, but don't let up. And then that kind of became internalized into this, like, if you're always working hard, or sorry, rather, if you always need to be working hard, if you're always hearing you better work hard, even when you're working hard, huh, I guess I must not be working hard enough. And then slowly, I think that phrase started to merge for me into just flat out, you're not working enough. And then eventually, you're not enough. So it's kind of like that specter always in the back of my head. That's almost the, one of the favorite voices of my particular gremlins. So you're not doing enough, you're not enough. And I'm guessing that journey actually takes you a long way in terms of success. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, well, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness, right? So I'm always reliable to do the hard work, which is a problem when sometimes there's like an easier way in front of me. Like, I, you know, it's almost like metaphorically, I can see all these people taking this nice simple path and I'm like, ah, oh, you're not doing the hard work. And they're like, you dummy. Like, this is a much easier path. We could just walk here and you could get there way sooner. Like, no, it must be hard work. Yeah, so it has to be hard. That's interesting, isn't it? It has to. Yeah, mm. yeah. So it's a great strength because I'll never, I'm always willing to get my hands dirty and to do the hard work, except when I start to cheat on it, which is, we can talk about that too. But like, generally speaking, I'm reliable for it. But, you know, you start to look through stuff through that filter. Where am I not working hard? Great, let's start working hard over there. Mm. And is it across all areas? Are you into sports when you're young as well as academics? A little bit. Like I played soccer or footy for our, our Commonwealth people. And um, definitely there I put a lot of pressure on myself to, like, for my team to do well. It, a lot of it relied on me. I would say, yeah, generally speaking, everywhere. There's a team called the Commonwealth people? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a very large team that England created quite a number of years back. Wow exclusive <laughs> they take credit for all the wins but none of the losses <laughs> did you grow up in west coast canada yes that's right yeah victoria british columbia victoria okay and how does the island life kind of define your upbringing hmm. i don't you know to tell you the truth i don't i don't know that it actually does aside from maybe it's hard to see the water you swim in right so it it maybe it doesn't or maybe it does in as much as i you know, I'm obviously privileged, like tall, white male living in Canada, which is a very rich, abundant country in sort of a, the island that we live on is, is fairly isolated. So I didn't get exposed too much to other cultures or stuff like that. 
Uh, to tell you the truth, though, I don't, I don't know. We'd probably have to ask someone else. Mm. Like, well, how has that changed the way Adam shows up in the world? They could tell us better than, than I could, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So at what point do you leave the island then? Do you go to university there? Yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't leave the island to live anywhere else until I was working as a lawyer, which was quite a number of years down the road. Hmm. And you, you did your law degree in Victoria? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so it's very convenient. Like, and part of that is because Victoria is this amazing place to live. It's gorgeous. It's got incredible weather for Canada. It's in Canada, which I like a lot. Um, so, yeah, maybe you could accuse me of being a little bit sheltered. Hmm. If you wanted to cast some sort of judgment at me, I would never you could do, do that. Such a thing. I, that's, I know. That's, you're such a safe place, Nathan. Yeah, I'm a safe place to land. <laughs> um, why law? So there's a few reasons. Um, the, the, do you want to hear the catalyst for it? Yeah. I was a software developer, later turned project manager, and I was doing well. And I was looking at, you know, what's next? From, where do we go from here? And I saw, if I, if I kind of cast my gaze out five years into the future, I saw bigger projects, teams, salaries, budgets. Oh, my God, I'm so bored by what I was looking forward. Like, as I cast my gaze out, it just seems so dull. And further, I was bored now. Like, I was doing this work, and I was bored. And I had it, I, I do what I tend to do, which I'd like controlled all the variables and then dialed it in and then so I could do my job in about three hours and I was sitting there dicking around for another five and uh, I would do stuff I'm not proud to admit but I'd like come into work and find a way to get stoned because I could still do my job you know I was well who knows right we could argue it probably impacts anyhow but for the most part I could get away with that and that's not at all what I'm committed to or what I want from my career. And so I started looking at, you know, what are some other things I could do? And uh, law seemed like a good fit because one, I knew I'd never regret having a law degree in my back pocket. Kind, kind of don't like the debt that came with it, but I don't regret the degree. I, <laughs> I knew that, um, well, I love being right and I love arguing to prove that I'm right which sounds kind of pithy, but it's also true. And I, I really liked this, like there's a nobility, I think, to practicing law where you're, you're helping people and you're meeting people at their lowest and then supporting them to achieve some kind of victory. It, it turns out in practice, that's not really how it feels and often how it actually plays out. But I, in, in theory, that really appealed to me. So those were some of the reasons. And then there was a few other that were a little more sort of random. Because yeah, I feel like with that kind of career, you either go into it because you have a certain level of intelligence and uh, some character traits that match that. And then there's yeah. what you talked about where it's like, oh, actually, this is a place where I can give back, use my gifts to give back. There's more of that for you. Yeah. Well, I actually think it's both for most of us that get into it. Like, first of all, law is a, a place where a lot of really smart people end up when they don't know what to do because it is super brainy, intellectually stimulating work. You're basically solving puzzles or creating puzzles other people can't solve. And I think a lot of people that get into law have, and you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past about this character trait, like huge hearts and really want to serve people from that, that heartfelt place. And generally speaking, have kind of learned to filter being through your head. So we get into it. We're like, wow, this will be a place to serve people. I can really 
give back to the world. And then we're kind of immediately like, nope, that's not how it's going to go. You got to protect your heart if you want to do this work because you are going to get cut to pieces if your heart's on your sleeve. And do you, do, you, do you see a trait in successful lawyers that manage to push past that? Or are the most successful ones the ones that can put their heart to the side and just be analytical and cutting about what they do? I think I would say like the – such a good question. I'd say the – it depends how we define success, of course, right? Like the most successful lawyers are probably open-hearted and able to be like really hurt and to really be compelled by a cause or by injustice and to really show up. But that's like the top, very top part of the iceberg, like the very tip of it. Probably like pilots, right? Like I, I suspect that the most successful pilots, the highest of the highest, actually are operating with an open heart and actually do have all that. Whereas the vast majority of the lawyers that are successful and are making a lot of money have, like you just described, they've learned to like shut off the heart run everything through the abacus on top of their shoulders and don't let anything get to them. Fine. I'll work 12 hour days. Fine. I, you know, that's horrible. What happened to my client? Fine. My staff feel this way about me. doesn't matter. I am doing this and this is what needs to be done and I'm doing it. And you see that a lot in the law profession. Constantly. Right. Yeah. It, and, and like these people, it's funny because people often say, well, Adam, I have to because that's, you know, I'm a lawyer. And I would say, actually, you've got it. You've got it backwards. You became a lawyer because you'd learned to do this long ago. You'd learned to master this skill many, many, many years before you ever came into law. This is just a further mastery of what you've already learned to do in your life. Wow. Yeah. And so what are the negative aspects of being that way? How does it play out for <laughs> those people or for you if you were in that position? Yeah. Um, well, I have been in that position. Like that's kind of the pedigree that I, that I came into my current career from is negative aspects. Like, well, we are pretty numb, you know, like we can intellectually articulate the times in our life when we feel joy, but we don't actually feel, it's not really a heartfelt like, yes, I'm so open and alive. It's more like, being able to really describe it well, like an intellectual <laughs> would describe the experience of love, right? Yeah. Like, wow, my professor expounded upon what it means to be in love for 30 minutes, but that doesn't actually replicate the feeling of being in love with someone, right? And so I think people with that, if we, we can call it a skill, because it is in some ways, but when it's automatically always on and you can't turn it off, what you get is pretty numb to pain, um, pretty shut down, and then the real tragedy, I think, with these kind of people is they're so skillful at um, how they numb themselves that they aren't even present to it. Like their ability to numb their own pain is so sophisticated, they're, they're not even aware that they're in pain. And then what you end up seeing is a lot of drinking, a lot of substance abuse problems, a lot of tons of relationship breakdown because it turns out that you can't solve a relationship with an abacus. I mean, these are just some of the problems that show up. I know I've been trying for 35 plus years, but not yet have I managed to crack. I think just a few more years and I'll get to it. Yeah, maybe another book or a <laughs> seminar. Oh, definitely another book, yeah. And if you have one, that's going to be the one. <laughs> the one that changes everything. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah, so so interesting. I see that the parallel I see in uh, airline flying a lot is 
well, drinking, I have to say, you know, as a, a way to kind of, mm-hmm. uh, what would you say, how, the catalyst to get to a happy place, you know, so feeling uh, the weight of boredom a lot of the time of the job, yeah. the weight of um, having to provide for a family, the weight of, you know, maybe being fatigued and tired all the time, being, you know, flying all these hours that you normally wouldn't want to be awake as a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of finding yourself in this position where you have to find a shortcut to joy. Yeah. Like, I really think it's, it's tragic is such a dramatic word, but I do think it's quite tragic because you have these brilliant, what we do is we have the patterns we develop to sort of overcome the problem of not feeling ourselves, of not feeling expressed or alive or whatever, such as drinking. And then we judge ourselves for that pattern and then we try to shut down the pattern. And it's like, no, that's the only thing that gives you a sense of being alive. Like you have those two drinks and suddenly you're actually able to express yourselves a little more and you start to feel excited and happy and now you're trying to kill that as well. And one way or another, your body or your being is going to find some way to express joy. Yeah, so the, the alcohol thing is interesting because it also, you see it amplify people's sadness as well. And it just, I mm. hadn't really thought of it that way until you said that lawyers in particular become experts at numbing the pain. And sometimes the alcohol yeah. can, you know, take that barrier down too. Well, you know, I think that's maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I noticed that my belief and what I've found from like working with tons and tons of people is that what usually people come to me with a lack of joy in their life. And the first place I look is how often do you let yourself be sad and or angry? Because if you shut those down, it's like you don't get to cut off what we might call the low part of the emotional spectrum. It's, it's all or nothing. Like our ability to express ourselves comes as a whole. You can't chop out part of it. So I think you're right. Like, Oh, I drink and I, I do get to be happy, but I also get to be sad. And there's some catharsism, whatever that word, that's a really hard word, but you know, there's some catharsis in doing that. Mm. But yeah, for me, that's a hard one. I found the more I've got into coaching and the more that I have to, well, in my mind, be someone for someone. <laughs> the harder mm, I've found yeah. to, you know, find places to be sad or be angry, and I feel like my judgment of myself has actually increased around those things. Um, yeah. Well, that's such a that's. I mean, that's really one of the reasons. I know you you walk this walk too. Like that's part of the reason coaches need coaches is so that we actually have venues and places to express that because we spend so much time over there with the other person, don't we? Yeah. Like I can't just burst. Well, I mean, sometimes that's what's required is me to model what it means to be really sad with my client. But generally speaking, I can't like, oh, I'm fighting with my wife and let me just vent at you for 10 minutes. It's not my place to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I tell people, well, I don't do a lot of telling in my calls, but you know, I yeah. discuss a lot with people about you know showing vulnerability and breaking down and really showing that that's human and that it's, it doesn't go away. You don't read the yeah. next book and you don't find a better therapist or a better coach and then suddenly you're complete and you're never sad again. So, but I don't, I don't seem to tell myself that. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, yeah. I'm just realizing that now as I talk. 
I've got like this belief that because sometimes people, maybe you get this too. Sometimes people will come to me, um, you know, if we're at an event or something, and I, I, I want to model. I want to share. Like, yeah, here, how are you doing? Here's what people ask: you, How are you doing? Right? You're like, oh, freak! I can spend an hour answering that question. Great. I'm a little scared of this. I'm feeling great about this. I'm a little sad about this. And they'll they'll say something like, oh, do you want to get rid of that fear? And I just they'll tell me like, you know, I've got this great, I don't know they'll rub my face with cream or hypnotize me or do some deep dimensional family work or whatever it is. I don't, I don't think we ever, like, I don't think I'll ever completely eradicate the story that I'm not enough. That voice will probably always whisper over my shoulder into my ear. What I will do is I will eliminate the significance of it. So it's like, Oh, it's there. I must be up to something that really matters to me. Otherwise I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be playing that old familiar voice in my head. Hmm. And kind of falling in love with it as well, like yeah. rather than trying to, because I think we spend our whole life trying to pretend that the things that are holding us back aren't there, and just find better ways to uh-huh. cover them up and go, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not that, I'm definitely not that. Yes, um, yeah. Or, or we'll do that game where it's uh, <laughs> I and my people always do this. We try to <laughs> rationalize the fear away. Right. Like, huh, it's, I don't know why I'm afraid of that. There's no reason. Blah blah blah. <laughs> and the fear's like, guess what, dummy? I'm irrational. You can't think your way out of me. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the other thing that came up when we were talking, you know, for pilots, and I don't know, this might not be very popular to say this, but I can, fuck it, I'm leaving the job. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, there's a, a part of the job that's very, uh, it, it kind of goes against who we are as humans. One is we have a seniority yeah. system. So all promotion comes from, how long you've been in the company it's mm. almost zero performance um basis for any promotion and that's fine it, it creates kind of this egalitarian culture which is nice in some ways but it also means that once you've been in a company 10 years leaving that company or the thought of leaving that company because you're not feeling joy or you want to do something that's more enjoyable becomes almost a non-option because you're giving up 10 years of seniority mm. which yeah. is everything is everything you've worked for is based on just time in the company um and the the, the micro version of that is having to go to work at 4 p.m on a friday and fly for 12 hours when you really just are sad or angry or really just enjoying family time and you know, there's a version of this with every job, of course, where you just have to t- turn up at a certain time. But there's this kind of unnatural part of flying where you're, you're very trapped into this uh, machine and it's very hard to be human in that machine. That is, wow. Like I really felt that as you were sharing that and I felt what happened was I was like, man, I feel a lot of empathy for pilots because that would be... Well, I read this article recently saying how on the whole, we are less, we're more risk averse and less, we're chasing security more than ever before. And the fascinating, they said less businesses are happening. It's bad for our economy. And if you compare for inflation, people these days are making less money than someone in 1956 made. I don't know why 56, I guess that's the year they looked at, but that's astonishing. Hey, Hmm. Why do you think that is? 
Well, I think it's because exactly that we're we're wary of risk. We don't want to take risk. And what you just described is all about like the longer you stay here, the more locked in you are. That's the antithesis of taking a risk, right? Taking a risk would be to say, hey, I've been here two years. I'm not happy. I believe I could be happy elsewhere. I'm going to make the jump. Yeah, I looked at it. I took a quite pragmatic approach to it because I felt that sense of someone called it the golden handcuffs you know where you're kind of stuck mm-hmm. in this job and it's the, the, the other part of the seniority is your your salary is increasing every year and you know it yeah. peaks at like the 25 year mark um, then I'll feel good yeah then I'll feel good and you know like I'm, I'm on that track <laughs> and I, like, get there. Yeah, I just gotta I just gotta sit here and deal with my unhappiness for 25 years and then I'll be rewarded yeah um, but I could see the, you know, I, I the longest I ever stayed in an airline was four four years. I think partly because of this reason, I could feel myself starting to feel that trappedness. Um, yeah, and that's something I I, I hate that feeling, uh, and I knew it would end up getting to a point where I wouldn't be able to get out of it. It was kind of coming to that crossroads where it's like, okay, I've invested so much time into this, I need to stop. Um, so I, I intentionally went to a job that didn't have seniority. So I went to an airline on a contract basis rather than mm. an airline where at a seniority basis, just so I knew that I took that feeling of being trapped off the table. Now, again, this is this will be a super unpopular conversation in some pilot <laughs> circles, circles to say this, but um, that for me just allowed me to know, okay, and even now leaving the job, I know I can go straight back into that job at the same pay, relatively the same level, um, there's no seniority restriction. So it just allowed me just to be able to keep my thinking a little bit freer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Were you conscious? Like, were you consciously saying, okay, I don't want to be, I don't want to fill these golden handcuffs. So I'm going to do it this way. Or was it kind of like, did, did you feel yourself led there by your intuition without having it distinguished? Like you just did. It was a component. So every decision yeah. like this is, you know, filled with probably a hundred components in reality. And that was one of them, but it was definitely conscious. It was definitely conscious. And it was just another component of going, yeah, this will be nice seeing I'm going into business that the intention of taking this job and the, the way it was set up two weeks on, two weeks off was to start a business and this business, coaching, podcasting, whatever, that a business that I got a lot of joy from. And so I didn't want to be trapped and I wanted to know that if the business got to a point, I would be able to comfortably exit and not feel like I was held in that job and, and trapped there by a system. What do you What do you think, like, because the analog, as you're speaking, I'm like, what's the analog in law? And what I see is people get to partner. And it's the way I think of lawyers is it's a lot like trying to, you're, you're put on a, a treadmill when you get out of school. And people are like, okay, the way to get off this treadmill is for me to run fast enough to get off the front of it. And often they think like partner, I'll make partner at my firm. And then, then I can sort of dump all this on my associates and blah, blah, blah. What, but I notice that once they get to that level, it's, there's even more at stake and they, you know, they have the even nicer house with the bigger mortgage and et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, do you think more senior pilots would have that same flexibility or that a bit like how would you support someone in in getting beyond that that's tough I, i'm not sure and 
you know, ask me that question in a year when I've been out of flying for a year. Um, right. So maybe I'll have yeah. a better idea. Um, yeah, and I guess the same question for you. It's it's the question of you know, can you find true joy and true happiness in those jobs, these jobs, or yeah. <laughs> do you have to get out? You know, if you really want to be a fully expressed, fully fulfilled um, human that's really truly giving their gifts. Um, I'm not sure about that, and it's probably both. Like I know there's a bunch of pilots. Probably, I would say the minority though that are really truly meant to be there, that yeah. love flying, that love the study involved, that love the night shift, that love training other pilots, that love the company, that you know that they love everything about it, and that's the place they should be. They're pretty rare, but I yeah. know there are those people out there that are just born to do it, and they could do it for their whole lives, and that's their that that's their greatest gift is to be in that role. Yeah. Um, there's 10% that should never be there for different reasons. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but probably the, the 70, 60, 70, 80% are the ones that are... Another thing that I've been hearing a lot lately is, God, I just, you know, I'd, I'd give anything to get out of this job, but I just don't have anything else. I don't know what my gifts are. Or I don't know where I'd make money. I don't I don't really think I have anything to offer the world other than just sitting in this airplane and flying all night. It's scary to discover that too. Like, I wonder if maybe you see the same thing. Um, a lot of people, not a lot, but certainly there's a significant number of people I talk to where they've learned to shut down seeing what they want because if you see what you want relative to where you are currently, that's just going to, it's it's like another way of numbing your pain. Like if I don't know, if I let go or if I block myself from really seeing my heart's desire on this planet then I don't have to see the discrepancy between that and what I'm currently doing. Oof. And like, man, that sucks, right? Like, and that's it's so like hard. someone bleeding like out. When and you're not... in it, you know, like when you're right in it, that would make perfect sense. But to like come right out and, you know, look from a high level, excuse the yeah. pilot analogy, but to look from a high level back and go, do you realize how insane that is? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that is so challenging is, I'm trying to weave this into a force for the trees analogy, but it's not going to work. But like all of these patterns make so much sense on the ground. Yeah. And with altitude, it's like, wow, it's, it, I always think of it like, um, being on a life raft, you're dying for what, like dying for moisture because you're dehydrated and that, that it's like drinking from the ocean, you know, short term, it moistens your lips and you're like, Oh my God, thank goodness. I can actually like open my mouth again. And, but it actually is killing you in the medium to long term. Yeah. And the the other component is you're surrounded by agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. You're not putting yourself in. I think that's one of the benefits, you know, of, of, yeah, in hindsight, I didn't do this intentionally, but being, getting into the coaching business and then being surrounded by a whole bunch of other people that are doing a whole different thing that are not (laughs) buying into my bullshit about why I'm staying in this job is incredibly valuable but again for the most people and i guess lawyers are the same they're surrounded by people that have agreed right we're all doing this we're all giving up on you know our true happiness so that we can sit in here and kind of get a reasonable income yeah good okay let's not talk about it again yeah well and i um i i had this in my relationship you know my wife like when i first shifted from law to coaching and really got hit between the eyes with some really powerful coaching 
they, they told me, you know, package looks great. You're smart, charming, handsome, witty, successful. You those bits. You're like a, what's that? You added yeah, those I had all of, yeah, yeah, some bonus bits. <laughs> the, the list has grown as I tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> but they said you're, you're like a new iPhone or a shiny, a perfect shiny suit of armor with no way in at all. Like you have no ability for authenticity, vulnerability, intimacy, none of that. So I said a bunch of other stuff, but I, it was the first time I'd been able to see it. I come home and start practicing vulnerability and intimacy, sharing my fears, sharing what doesn't feel good, sharing what I'm sad or upset about. My wife hates it. And it makes total sense that she would hate that because we built, I'm basically violating our tacit agreement. We built a relationship based on this notion that I'm the stoic, unfeeling, immovable white knight who's got it all sorted out. And she gets to be the one that has all the emotions for us both. And I come home and I'm like trying to show up differently. I'm basically breaking through that agreement. Like I'd even surrounded myself with an agreement to how I was showing up in the world in my relationship. Is this making sense? It's making perfect sense. And I mean, I I hear the story a lot as well. But did you have a conversation with her and say, hey, I'm going through some changes. This is what it's going to look like. Or did you just kind of start practicing? A bit of both. Like... You know, I, I really didn't realize what I was getting into when I, I thought I was signing up for this year-long program. They were going to teach me the best tools. I was going to learn the good tools. And I think if I'm really honest, I thought I was going to teach people how to be more like me. And what I learned was I had, like my work was really to learn to teach me how to be more like me. Yeah. Like how could I actually let go of the bullshit and bring more of Adam Quiney into the world? So I I came home not really like – a little bit like someone who's, you know, uh, I just had the wool burnt off my eyes. And uh, I think I tried both. But of course, again, you're, we surround ourselves with agreement because that allows us to stay safe and it normalizes what we're doing and it keeps us in check. And so there's probably no amount of, hey, I'm going through changes and this is what it's going to look like that would have made a difference. Yeah. You don't really know that going into it. Though. <laughs> you just got to have those conversations as they come up. Um, exactly. Can we just backtrack a little bit? Because I feel like we've, we've jumped all over the place here. And just to give yeah, uh, the listeners more context about you. So you've kind of touched yeah. on bits and pieces, but just take me through the position from you're successful as a lawyer and then something changes mm-hmm. and you get out of law. Yeah, so I'm actually in law school. I've been in it for two years. And there's a couple problems. First of all, I love the study of law, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I like the nobility of it, at least in theory. In practice, I'm learning that it's fairly capitalistic and cutthroat, and that while in theory it's noble, in practice it's pretty aggressive and doesn't feel that noble. And I also can't find any lawyers that really love what they do. I find lawyers that can brilliantly articulate to me why they like what they do quite a bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when I ask them, hey, so do you love your job? They go, well, here's the thing. I'm like, well, that's a fail. That is not, I want you to spin on my neck with enthusiasm. That is what I'm looking for because that's how I want to feel about my job. Mm-hmm. So I I start to look for um, alternate careers. At this point, I've, I've been working a couple different summering jobs. And um at this point, I'm still planning in practice law, but I'm going to kind of slowly move on or try to figure out what's next. And that's when I meet a lawyer, uh, 
a former lawyer who's now a coach and probably like you experienced as he described what he did. I was like, what? That's crazy. That's a, like, I've always been that person. That's a, that's a thing. Like you can, you can do that as a career. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so that, that basically began the journey. Um, do you want me to elaborate a little bit more on the full transition? Yeah. 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 So for about six months, uh, that guy tells me two things that are really valuable. He says, this is a profession, treat it like one and get trained in it. Don't, you know, there's a low barrier to entry. You could call yourself a coach right now. Don't do that. Start like pay for training and hold this with reverence and hire a coach. Cause if you're not doing your own work, it just doesn't make sense. If you're not buying it, it doesn't make sense to sell it. So I'm like, okay, cool. Hire that guy. I take the training that he's done. Um, I am still in. What are you thinking at this point? You're thinking like, okay, this is a good career. I get to you know teach people how to be like me, make some money. Yeah, so I'm I'm like about six months in, and I'm thinking, wow, this is kind of neat. Um, but the real problem is one, I feel like a personal project manager for their life. Yeah. So you know, I ask the questions that we think to ask, like you know, the quote, right questions like, okay, what do you want? What's in your way? (laughs) What do you need to move out of the way? What will have you be accountable? And certainly there's a time and place for that. Right. But I feel like we overcome something. And then two weeks later, we're doing that. We're having the same conversation. We're kind of moving this person forward, but not really. And worst of all, I'm starting to feel bored again. And I'm like, Oh, fuck this is meant to be the profession where I didn't get bored. Like I thought I'd found the one. So I'm pretty concerned. I know I need more training. I'm finishing up law school. I definitely, at this point, I'm clear. I don't want to be a lawyer and I'm a little bit lost. Like I'm doing, I'm numbing myself from that lostness. And I'm just like, I just need more tools. And that's when, um, I first kind of, that's when I signed up for this year long program that then I later led for five years and that's where I first get my first experience or taste of really being coached powerfully and having someone really see me through my bullshit, through the game that I've become an expert at, at playing to stop people from really getting at my my vulnerable self, which I can share more of if you like. Yeah, I'm interested. The, the, the game, like just obviously you don't know it's a game at the time, but you, yeah. you're a master of spoken word. And so you can yes. just talk your way out of not, having to show your real self is that sort of how it is yeah well let me so i alluded to this i'll share kind of how it how it went um i signed up for this year-long program and they tell me they don't tell me too much but they say like the belief is that if you want to create a powerful coach you must coach them powerfully you must confront them with the stuff they're avoiding in their life drive their shit up and coach them through the breakdown to the the breakthrough on the other side of that i'm like whatever (laughs) I don't know what any of that means. Sounds sounds like a bunch of bullshit. How do I get to that like that other side? Let's get me there. And so, Is that how a lawyer I, approaches things. Yeah, pretty right. much. I I go down to this one of twelve weekends in Seattle. So it's like a day of traveling each way. It's it's very intense, very expensive program. And at the start of this first weekend, they say we're gonna we're gonna introduce you to the room. We're gonna do it in kind of a, a kind of a unique way. We're going to point to your highest and greatest self, the version of you that showed up on this planet before you were taught what to be afraid of, what stories about yourself to hold true, how you, you know, just the version you are when you're not fettered in any way. Mm. 
And we're going to point to the stuff you put in the way, the stuff you do to stay hidden or safe or to protect you from us or protect us from you, et cetera, et cetera. And when it's my turn and they say, may we work with you, I'm like, (laughs) I'm very arrogant in hindsight. At the time, I don't realize I'm arrogant at all uh, because it's all, you know, opaque to me. I can't see my stuff. Mm. And my thinking is kind of like, what the heck are you going to show me? I've, I've, I'm already on my second career, now third. I've been reading personal development books since I was 13. I have clients. I've got a coach. Some of my clients are paying me. I'm a friggin' lawyer. Hashtag like, winning. Do your work. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hashtag winning. Hashtag bulletproof tiger. And um, in a lot of ways, I was bulletproof. And so what they say to me is, you know, looks good, all of that stuff I shared, no capacity for authenticity. No, no capacity for vulnerability, zero ability to create intimacy with people. And they, they are telling me this after I've, I've just talked for 10 minutes and they say, okay, great. Can we work with you? So it's not like they've spent a lot of time getting to know me. They're just seen right through my shit. And, um, as they share that with me, as they reflect that, I can see it everywhere in my life where that shows up. Like I notice it wow, the way I even get off the bus and brilliantly time my walking speed so I don't catch up to that person in front of me that's in a class with me because then I might have an awkward conversation and they might then realize that I'm kind of a loser. They might see through looking good and the cool clothes and everything and realize what a loser I am. Like it's this amazing way that I've set up to not ever run into the stuff I'm afraid of. And even the way I would practice vulnerability is so fucking safe. Like I'd read Brene Brown's book and go, okay, got it, be vulnerable. And then I'd go and be vulnerable with the safest people in the world because I'd eliminated everyone in my life that was truly vulnerable. Like I'd even, I was surrounded by agreement, right? Did it feel vulnerable and with those people or did it, did it still not really even feel vulnerable when you were opening it? it? It was like I could articulate why it was vulnerable and no, it wasn't vulnerable. Right. Vulnerability Wait, when life. you see those people... You mean the people I, yeah, vulnerability light. You mean the people I was, yeah. not the people coaching me in this moment, no. but the people I'd go in. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they say, look, great skills for a lawyer. If you think about it, like constantly scan yourself for flaws, so you can address them before anyone else does. Scan other people for their flaws, so you can punch them there if they ever become a threat. <laughs> Use your wit and your intellect to manipulate the conversation so it never goes anywhere that's unsafe. Maybe even so other people aren't aware you're doing it. Let people think that they're getting in with you, but you're actually secretly holding them at arm's length. Like amazing lawyer skills. You can leave here right now and you're going to be a very successful lawyer if you're not one already. However, shit skills for building relationships. And if you want to do this work, it's ultimately a profession of deep relationship. You can you can have all the tools in the world and it won't make a damn difference if you don't have a really powerful relationship with the person you're working with. And that one hit really because um, my my wife and I, as you know, like we we've, we've been struggling with intimacy all our all our relationship. That is our relationship struggle, and certainly physical intimacy, but intimacy across the board. You know, I I I, I am the stoic one. I don't share what's going on, so that's kind of the death of intimacy. If you can't show anyone your mess, mm. and then they say to me, Adam, if you leave here right now, which you can do you will still be a leader in the world. It's just the set of traits you are, the qualities you were born with. 
we look to you for leadership. You've probably noticed that you tend to rise towards that role in group projects, et cetera, et cetera. However, you will forever be a leader of followers because those are the people that you're currently willing to let yourself be fully expressed around. They're the people that are safe enough for you to be open. And if you're willing to do this work and we're here, we'll coach you. We've, you've got a team of people standing for your breakthrough. You've got a coach every week that you're talking to and you're still too fucking slick. You can let us think we're making a difference and then slide us out the back door. So you got to unlock it from within. And if you're willing to do that, the person you're on this planet to be is a leader of leaders. And so as you might imagine, <laughs> I drive home at the end of this weekend for four hours and I cry the entire way, not because I'm sad, but because I've been opened up in a way I've never experienced. And I've seen people in a way I've never seen people or like haven't seen for 35 plus years. My heart was opened and I could see through my judgments and through their stuff. And that was the moment where I was like, this, this is the life changing awareness, the transformational kind of insight that I've been craving. And instead I've been kind of drinking that ocean salt water with, you know, little incremental shifts, conversation that does move people forward, but it's all on the surface. And it was leaving me feeling parched, starving. So how does it change your work with people now that you have this insight about yourself? Well, it, I mean, it completely shifts all of it, right? Because what my people want to do, my people are the smartest people in the room. That's how I, I like to term them. And what the smartest people in the room are masterful at doing is figuring out what's the equation, what is the answer I need in order to solve that equation. And so they, we tend to be, we tend to hate looking wrong. We become really good at not looking wrong. And so we tend, like, they'll show up to a coaching conversation looking for, like, what's the answer I haven't gotten? And I feel their intensity around that. And I really want to look smart. And I really don't want them to perceive me as stupid because these are fucking smart people. But so from my fear, without this insight, without any of this work, what my fear would have me do is to provide them an answer. And that's what their fear wants too. That's what they're masterful in doing. Like, okay, this guy's got the answer. Let's get the answer from him. But really what my greatest brilliance is, is in being willing to look really stupid with them and to ask them really stupid questions or to tell them, wow, you just spoke for 15 minutes and I don't have a damn clue what you actually want in your life. And to, to be able to love them and to stand firm in that willingness to ask them stupid childlike questions and to appear really stupid so that they can start to, to be willing to ask themselves questions that feel stupid. Yeah, so much is coming up for me. Like I have a lot of friends that are doctors and mm. they're pressure to be the smartest the person brag in the there. room. Yeah, that's a humble yeah. brag. I, I don't know if you have a lot of doctor friends, but I certainly do. Um, <laughs> and they, I, I notice a, a trait in them they, that the pressure, they've always been the smartest people since school, right? And then university. Yes. And then, but then the pressure to maintain that image looks so intense. I can see it on their faces that they have to get the answer the quickest or else they might not be the smartest person in the room. And then what would that say about me? Yeah. Who would I be without that? And the, I think part of the journey for these people we're talking about like this, is to learn that our brilliance actually doesn't come from having the right answer because that's something externally driven, right? Like, oh, the answer's out there and I can get it. Our deepest brilliance comes from our willingness to be 
in the unknowing, to, to be in the not knowing. Like when we're willing to just actually hang out and I don't know, or I am so lost, that's where our highest brilliance comes from. Mm. And we, we are drawn to professions that are actually the opposite of that. I heard Kyle Cease talking about this. He's a um, transformational comedian is what he calls himself. I, I love his stuff. I love that. Yeah, and he was yeah. talking about, um, you know, when you're driving as a kid, when you're driving in the car with your parents and your dad is insistent that he knows exactly where you are and that you're not lost and that he's got the answers mm. and that just bear with him. There's no, there's no problem. <laughs> and even though he's completely lost, he he's given the illusion, hey, you know, no worries, we, I know where we are, just to go around here and he's just turning around random streets trying to figure it out but trying to remain calm and on the other side your mum is going uh adam we are lost let's just pull over i I know we're lost let's just get the map out and figure out where we are and to the little boy in the back or to the observer in that moment the dad looks like the one that has it all together and knows where you're going and the mum is the one that looks lost Yes. Uh, <laughs> the paradox is the mum is the one that's closer to being found or finding out yeah. where you are. And the dad is still, although he looks closer, he actually is further away because he hasn't even admitted that he's lost yet. So when you yeah. go through life, the people that say, hey, I'm actually really lost and I don't really know what's going on, I don't know what makes me happy and I don't really know who I am, are closer to finding the answer than the people that pretend like they have all the answers and know which way they're going. I, I wonder, I mean, first of all, hell yes, <laughs> blushing a little bit as you share that yes, story. Yeah. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> but um, I wonder if you find this with some of your people or yourself, actually. I notice brilliance is a great source of creativity. But from that need to not be wrong, that kind of leaves you with only one path. Like it, it moves me from my creative genius to this really linear approach that I take to things. So when I'm afraid of looking stupid or of being wrong or of, you know, just making sure that people know I'm brilliant. Cause if they don't, I could die or, you know, whatever my ego is telling me, like, do you, do you find yourself getting, getting drawn into that? Cause I can imagine in piloting creativity might not be the most highly sought after thing to bring forward in most of the situations you find yourself in. Yeah, it's sort of not as cut and dry as that. There's a there's a creative element right. to it that probably pilots wouldn't notice or acknowledge, but the way they fly the aeroplane is very creative and everyone flies the aeroplane slightly different and manages it slightly different and there is actually a form of right. creativity and a form of art in that, although yeah. you wouldn't probably use that language. Um, <laughs> but the, ga- the game in uh, being a pilot is having a massive ego, attempting to be the <laughs> best at everything and then pretending that you're not pretending you have no ego mm. and pretending that you're not trying to be the best and that it's all just easy <laughs> and you're an easygoing chap. Huh. What's the what's the cost of that? It's this the, the, the common theme between like, you know, our people and you know, I brought I guess it's a, a high performing professionals for want of a better phrase. Um yeah. Their life has been defined by doing. Yeah. And I have to do something. You know, I have to do something. Who I am is what I do. And if I'm not doing it really well, then who am I? Um, And what I've been learning, and, you know, I'm still struggling with this, but that's a very masculine trait is do, do, do. And a more feminine trait is to be. Um, 
and we're not very good at being right if we're just being if we're just sitting around being with ourselves and just being love compassion empathetic <laughs> all those other you know beautiful feminine traits then who are we yeah if we're not doing yeah. something who are we um and man like that for me that transition from doing to being has been excruciating yeah and i jump between the two all the time can you relate to that i remember um when i was first learning about that uh the distinction of doing versus being and i was asking some of my teammates like oh like <laughs> if i don't do stuff what the hell do i do like just lie in a field being present and and connect and they're like well how would that be for you and i was so infuriated but the funny thing i'm learning as i go deeper into my own practice is that like i i fear stillness in a way because it's i have this story that is boring but if i'm willing to like it's it's almost like holding the pose like in yoga if i'm willing to be with my boredom for long enough the boredom starts to go away and then like true creativity starts to show up and like so much happens from that that place of stillness and of just being of not doing and every time i have resistance to it every time you're also coming out of this childhood context of you better work harder and exactly so not doing anything in your being that's not working harder yeah and i was thinking of another thing um that kind of ties in with this which is that are you familiar with the concept of like a zone of genius versus a zone of excellence yeah. but it, make it, should make we it break it out people? yeah because it's yeah. a great distinction yeah so um, originally from Gay Hendricks' book, The Big Leap, and our zone of excellence is the stuff most of us do for our profession. It's what we do to earn money. It's kind of like what I was doing as a lawyer. So I was very good at being a master of word and playing things out and, and you know arguing to prove I'm right, all of that sort of stuff. Everything I do from fear tends to be in my zone of excellence. And our zone of genius is kind of like that thing only you can do. It's what you're on this planet to do, but it also tends to be much scarier for us because it it's putting all of ourselves into something. And so if people reject that, they're not rejecting what we're doing. They're rejecting us. And um, what I've noticed is that when we operate from our zone of genius, it tends to be effortless. You know, like I can just connect with people all day. That's part of actually you and I share that, right? We're, we're masterful at connecting with people. The scary thing about that is it's effortless. And so if I'm not yet generating results, that's really scary for me because it tells me I'm not working hard enough. Whereas in my zone of excellence, that's a whole bunch of effort. It feels crappy and it's like, oh, it's a lot of work. And so at least then I've got the comfort of my childhood story. Hey, I'm working hard. Maybe I don't have results yet, but I know I'm working hard. Yeah, there's an interesting piece. Like if, if, if I solved all your financial problems 10 times over, whatever that looks like, million dollars, 100 million, whatever it is for you, so that your financial yeah. problems are off the, the table. then And is this a genuine offer? <laughs> yeah, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> um, how, how does that look for you once do – you, do you still find a way to work hard? Oh, Absolutely. Like without a doubt, I would find, I would find, well, it's like someone winning the lottery, isn't it? You know, I wouldn't, first of all, you couldn't because 
It's more my relationship to money rather than the amount that I necessarily have. And of course, I'd find some place or something or, you know, like, let's take it. Let's start from there. Okay, so I've got all this money. Well, now I can do anything I want. Okay, I want to save the world and bring the an end to poverty. Well, guess what? I'm not doing I'm not working hard enough on that. Now it's my legacy or now I'm not building enough shoes for children in Africa or, you know, whatever it happens to be. I'd always find a way. You'll never be able to stop that. And what's the, um, what's the impact of that? Um, well, the impact of that, you know, is if I buy into that story, it's that I pendulum between burnout friend, uh, let's see if I'm just sort of distinguishing this in the moment, but frenzied action and burnout and then totally checking out and slothfulness or gluttony. Um, I can rarely enjoy any of my accomplishments because, you know, I get the, the brief euphoria of having achieved a big win. And then very quickly that story reasserts itself and it's like, guess what? You still aren't doing enough. And, you know, yeah, you got that win, but you better work hard over here. So then I, I, you know, very quickly get back into that pattern. And I guess globally the impact is just a lack of satisfaction if I'm not careful. Mm. Yeah. So what what are, what are some of the practices you have in place to kind of, because I'm guessing this is a daily battle? Yeah, it can be. Um, well, I think I notice, certainly with me and definitely with most of the people I've ever talked to, is that everyone has a story, right? Like not everyone's story will be you're not doing enough, but they'll have some story. And part of the practice I have is to not, re- like to be okay with it being there and like you and I talked earlier, like to, to love it, to love that part of myself, but not to really make it significant that I have a story. So like, oh yeah, I, I'm always going to have this concern or this voice whispering in my ear that I'm not doing enough, but I don't have to believe it. And so I try, I'm very diligent and committed in um, setting time where I don't do anything. This year I'm taking December and June entirely off because I recognize the value in not doing stuff and in having time set aside to just really be still. It's really important to me to, to like create structure that forces me to have fun, which sounds kind of ridiculous, but like booking vacations, (laughs) this is so silly, right? It's maybe it's not silly, but it, it's a lot of these are obvious pieces, but there are things that I'll step over in an instant. You know, if I don't make a point of booking myself to go away and I do a staycation, I guarantee you I'll find things to do during that staycation. Now I'm not producing music enough. Oh, now I'm not practicing dancing <laughs> enough. Like, so it's really important that I, I create structure that's sufficient to overcome my resistance to sitting still. So interesting. And like, so, so that sounds really difficult for me as well. Just yeah. the way you talk, I'm like, man, like this is so me, you know, if, if ever I have a day off, it's excruciating <laughs> yeah to not be doing it is something. isn't it yeah everyone talks about the benefits of meditation which um i guess i'm part of in part there's a little part of me that resists what everyone says is good but it is such a there's so much benefit for me in, in empowering that practice in my life not because meditation gets me anywhere not because it leads to me feeling better um but because it's a practice in every day being still for 10 minutes. That's literally all it is. Like I'm just, it's like I go to the gym and I work out my muscle called stillness. 
That's all I get from it. But I think that there's huge benefit for me in that. So I won't tell people, oh, yeah, I feel so much more ground. I don't. <laughs> I feel grounded when I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff because that's what's comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. I feel sometimes ungrounded when I sit still for 10 minutes because I'm not, you know, I'm not on in the comfort zone for me. But I do know that if I practice being still, that benefits me. Yeah. How do you? What about you? How do you? Yeah. What, what are your practices? What is, what's the secret that I don't have? Uh not sure the secret is i think just uh yeah keep being you know and stop trying to find an answer there is no answer on the b side of life it's just be and see what happens um i think (laughs) i was playing around with a guy before that was you know he's been a doer his whole life and is very successful and i he wasn't really doing a meditation practice and um long story short i just tried to use his do against him and i said um is one thing that will work with these people is say, I really don't think you can do this. Mm. <laughs> you know, like for a ambitious, oh, like you can't meditate yeah. kind of, uh, you know, yeah. like what you really need to be doing is meditating for 30 minutes a day, not trying to shut off your thoughts, actually really listening to your thoughts and figuring out what's there and you know, who yeah. you are and what's actually coming up and then getting out of the meditation and journaling for five minutes or five hours, whatever feels good until all the thoughts are out and you're really starting to, find out who the real you is and i really don't think you can do that i don't think you have the ability to sit and do that every day and for an ambitious person that is like dynamite right challenge accepted so yeah it's 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 turning a b challenge into a do challenge it's kind of using them against themselves so i love that yes i like to experiment with that um (laughs) for me uh there's still every morning like cold showers like a pillar yeah, of same. everything I do. And it's just never gone away. It's the one thing that just keeps coming back. Well, not keeps going back. It's never, never, never gone away because it's so impactful for me. And it's the first thing I do every day is it's never easy. I've never found it easy once, but I turn the shower yeah. on full cold and then I put a toe in the little pool of water that's forming in the bottom of the shower. And then I pull my toe out and then I walk into the kitchen and have a glass of water and then come back in the bathroom and then feel the spray a little bit. And at this stage, I'm starting to get chilly because I've been walking around half nude, you know, for about yeah. 10 minutes. And so now it's getting harder, but I still won't just dive in. And then I'll kind of look around and go, oh, man, I should, I'll, I'll just brush my teeth first. I'll, I'll attack that task before <laughs> yeah, right. I – and this is every day I go through this ritual in some, in some variation. podcast like that while your shower is running? <laughs> yeah. I've been delaying it for three hours. I've wasted a lot of water. Um you know, and then eventually I'll dive in. And at the moment when I dive in, it's, well, first of all, it's an amazing feeling, but I've now gone through what I do, which is procrastinate and do everything else and then not face what I'm scared to do. And then I've done it and I feel great. Yeah. So the first task, although it takes, you know, 10, <laughs> 20 minutes sometimes <laughs> for me to do it, I still do it every day. And at the end of that day, yeah. I've, faced something I don't want to do in the face and got through it. Um, I, I just thought of one more practice. May I share it? Sure. It's that I actually create places where my only job is to do. So I make, cause there's going to always, there's a part of me that is like driven, like just crazy, like mad, like I'm very passionate and I can tend towards perfectionism and obsession and addiction frankly. And so I, I set up places where like, I'm not trying to be perfect and to eradicate that. I actually create places where I can practice that. 
where I can really empower that part of myself. And so that's the other side of it is like, like you, I do cold showers and I, I, you know, there's such a practice in relaxing in the face of that discomfort. Mm -hmm. And then I have places where it's like, nope, don't have to relax, get on the squash court and like strive to be the best and let yourself be as annoyed as you need to be Adam, that you're not being the best right now. Yeah. There's a beautiful, uh, um, concept, I guess that we were talking about this when we met last time, but it's about range and Mm. really understanding what that means. So, you know, there's constant learning, but to start with, you go, okay, I've got this really ambitious competitive side that's, you know, been really, uh, it's come from, you know, my parents telling me I've got to work harder and I really want to get rid of that part of me. You know, it's not serving me anymore and it's to put, and you try and push it away. And then you kind of yeah. realize, oh, actually, that's a part of me and there's ways I can use it. But there's another side that I'm not very comfortable with that I've never played with before, and that's just being and relaxing and finding ways to play and, um, you know, and all it is is expanding out your range. It's not yeah. It's not taking anything away. Um, it's going, hey, now I've grown this. Now I've built a practice where actually I can sit for two hours on a couch and feel really comfortable. I can go through a whole lot of spaces, but I can do it. And I can also jump on the squash court and go, I can go full alpha, <laughs> alpha dog on yeah. it and just want to yeah. murder whoever's on the court with me, you know, until I've won. Yes. And so it's, it's yeah. kind of really getting to know yourself and expanding your range out of both, both sides. I love that idea. I remember, um, this story will resonate with you. I was, I was leading, I was training coaches and leading the work we were doing and, um, the person that gave me that first ever powerful reflection, he was supporting, he was developing my leadership. And at the end of a weekend, he said, uh, Adam, for six months, don't be funny in front of the room. Hmm. And I was like, what? How dare you? He's like, just don't be funny. Stop being funny for six months. And I'm like, but I love my sense of humor. And he said, yeah, we all do. But you rely on it. And if you take away that which you rely upon, you're going to have to develop new muscles. We're just broadening your range. And I hated him, especially because he was really funny too. And I'm like, you you just don't want the competition. But like, I'm sure he'd had that same reflection given to him some point in the past, which is why you could see it in me. And it was amazing what it, like it was really a struggle and really a challenge. And there was lots of moments I felt really awkward with, but boy, it, it, I really created some different ways of showing up when I, when I took away that thing that it almost become a crutch because it was so safe yeah i mean your wit is razor sharp thank you yeah i love it about right it's yeah and i can get out of trouble with it so easily so man do you do you see that in me because i know you've you've you pulled me up on that something the other day on absolutely yeah so you see me using that tool quite a lot as well oh like do i see you using well Huh, that's such a good question. I've not, not to the point where it's occurred to me, like, you know, because you and I are in a lot of different groups together. I don't think there's been a moment where I've thought, ah, he's using that to hide right now. But I would be shocked if you didn't, because part of your essence, part of your genius, in addition to connection, truly is wit. You and I, it's part of the reason you and I get along so well, right? And what we do to stay safe is we take our genius, we take our essence and we figure out ways to twist it or to, to use it to, to meet our nefarious ends, to stay safe and avoid fear and to hurt people when we want to hurt them. So I'd be shocked 
if you didn't have some flavor of that. Shocked. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I was uh, when you were talking about it, I was getting a little bit red faced, embarrassed, <laughs> and a little bit. I was sort of pulling my collar and going, "Ugh." <laughs> <laughs> I love um, it. Yeah, and the thought of going six months without using any humor for me, I was like, "Oh man, that will be a boring life to live." I think I use humor to keep life exciting. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I want to change gears a little bit just to kind of bring it all back and just in terms of what you do and uh, the people you work with. So I know you work with um, Olympians, CEOs, entrepreneurs and, and lawyers. If we just kind of stick to the what we've been talking about, the, the, the professional and in your case, lawyers, if a lawyer mm. comes to you, what would be a typical scenario that you would talk to someone in that profession and what would they be looking for? Or how would they approach you? Typically, the place they come from is wanting to be a little bit better because they're quite numb and they don't feel a lot of their pain, right? So it's like there's this small pain. It's almost like there's a little voice in them that is crying out for more. Like, And really, that more is a fuller experience of life, but that's not how it occurs to them. The way it would occur to them is, I want to be a better lawyer. I want my relationship to be better. And I'm pretty sure that like I should be having a bigger impact or that's one side of it. Or sometimes they come when the pain has gotten too great. They're just like, I am very successful and I'm working myself into the grave. Like I thought I was going to work less once I made partner or once I opened up my own firm and I'm working more than ever. What the hell? So I often the way that looks is I want better time management, which, you know, I don't know if you chuckled a little bit when you heard that term, but I certainly did when I said it. Mm, I didn't, but what what was it for you? This notion that like, if I could better manage my time, like as though the problem is that I'm not, that a lawyer's not managing their time. If I just had 30 hours in the day, that would be. That's right. And I always ask those people, okay, well, great. Let's start there. Like, what if you did, what if we were able to create an extra hour a day? What do you think you would spend it doing? And, they start with like, oh, more time with my kid or, you know, whatever. But with a little bit of loving them and, and playing with them, they get pretty quickly like, wow, I think actually what I do is I'd probably spend another hour at the office working. <laughs> yeah, It's it's not really a problem. I mean, lawyers are better at managing their time than literally any other human being on the planet because they I know, divide their the time up. Into, from them. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's down to like the, what is it, the sixth of an hour. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's crazy. That's You do not need better time management. But, hey, we meet people where they're at, and that's where the pain is being felt. Is I just, It's not usually a scarcity of money. It's more a scarcity of connection, relationship, or time. Hmm. Yeah. And the most of them, do you, the, the, the people you work with, the most of them end up leaving the profession, or do you manage to get them more joy and love and connection within the profession? Or is, that, is there no set way? Yeah, there's, I mean, it's a bit of both. Um, some of them are convinced they want to leave. And then as they, as they practice, like actually showing let me take one step back. The, the nature of law is that it's set up to not really reward, um, an authentic expression of your emotional state of your humanity, because your job is to be fully an advocate for your client and if I'm bringing my stuff to the table, it's like I'm just getting in the way, right? I'm almost meant to be this vessel, this conduit purely for my client and their desires. So it can be challenging. Some lawyers, 
they recognize after they start to share more that actually I don't want to do this profession at all. And a lot of them in the profession don't. They've just found their way there because they didn't know what else to do with their intellect. And it's a way to make a lot of money. Um, I think a lot of lawyers have an entrepreneurial spirit and a lot of the people I work with end up leaving to create their own thing because, because they love that. They love the, they love being out on the edge and, and when they get past their ability to see risk and be controlled by that, to just be able to see it, they're brilliant as entrepreneurs and just, so I guess I'm not really answering your question. It's probably about half and half. Some people stay some people move to different kind of um, firms or start off on their own firm in a way that allows them to be more expressed as a human being. And some people move on and become entrepreneurs and, and do stuff like that. Is there anything else there for you that you want to talk about or that you want to discuss that we haven't covered off? Is there anything that's burning that you want to get across to the people listening, particularly your mm-hmm. type of people? Is these uh, You said the smartest people in the room mm-hmm. type of people. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, yes. And I, I also don't want to preach because that's the trouble is that smartest people in the room don't need more advice. They don't need, um, another book or more information. What they need really, I think to really have a remarkable life as opposed to a Seth Godin says that the opposite of remarkable is pretty good. Yeah. And I love that quote because that's what my people have created pretty good lives lives that most people would be like, I want that. You're so lucky. You've got everything you want and which sucks because then they can't talk about it to anyone. And the the other one I heard, sorry to interrupt. The other one I heard was Mm. um, my life is fine and it's not fine that it's fine. Oh, I love that too. Yeah. Yeah, That's fantastic. Thank you for that. I use that. (laughs) What these people really, what would most benefit them to create the life they're on this planet to live is a willingness to start noticing what they're not getting, a willingness to start or to stop numbing themselves and to start feeling some of the pain. Cause for them, for you, if you're one of those people, for me, our pain is really our compass. Our fear especially is our compass. And we've learned to shut that down so effectively, more effectively than almost anyone else that I meet. And it's kind of like the first step is to really get present to the cost, what it's costing you. What's it like to not have any relationships? What's it like to, suffer from the syndrome of I want to strangle all of the morons and what does it cost you the strategy you've you've learned to adopt to to kind of live with that as opposed to overcoming it Mm, great questions and if people want to uh, follow you or learn more about you or chat with you or work with you what's the best way to get in touch with you or learn more about you Mm. Um, my name's very distinctive. I don't, I think there's only one other Adam Quiney in the world and he lives in England. So they can look me up that way. Adam Q U I N E Y is my last name. And, um, my website for my coaching is evergrowthcoaching.com. E V E R G R O W T H coaching.com. And then there's a myriad of ways that people can sort of, um, follow or interact or I guess really play with me. Um, my wife, Bay and I do a podcast called the Evergrowth Podcast, which is on iTunes. We, um, we release a, sort of a weekly newsletter. I publish content via Facebook and on LinkedIn and on our website. So um, you probably feel this way too. Like I just love being in conversation with people. I love it when people reach out and because uh, life happens in conversation, doesn't it? And so um, that's my favorite is when people just reach out and connect that way. 
Yeah, beautiful. I'm so grateful that we connected because we have, you know, through our conversations, we've found how our two worlds are so, so similar and uh-huh. you know, really trying to, really trying to change, I think, tra- change the dynamic or change uh, what looks like how it is in our, mm. you know, our uh, industries to maybe suggest that there's a better way and not just saying, hey, you got to leave and find something else or you just have to accept the fact that you'll always feel this way, but just uh, having this conversation that maybe there's a better way and maybe there is a way that you can have an extraordinary life. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to a pretty good life. <laughs> as opposed to that. So we'll definitely have this yeah. conversation again and um, maybe even something more will come out of this, but um, yeah, I'm man. grateful that we connected. The uh, the last question, and I ask uh, of everybody, and it's um, a little bit vulnerable, but, but everybody listening loves it and loves hearing about it, and they kind of hang through the whole interview to hear this last question um, <laughs> to see what you're going to say. So no pressure at all. But <laughs> do you have a dark side and... It's kind of a trick question. Uh, and if so, how do you embrace it? Uh, no, I don't. So it's been great <laughs> having you on. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Really vulnerable for you to share that. Yeah. Um, yes, I absolutely have. I have many dark sides. I'll try not to spend too much time talking about them. Um, so I'm very passionate and I can tend towards what I would call habit forming or addictive behavior. And my favorite places to do that are, um, substances. I love alcohol. I love marijuana. Um, I become obsessive about video games, um, because the sort of games I like to play are very heady. And then that can become like the sole measure of my worth as a human being, because if I'm winning, then I'm clearly brilliant and I'm not stupid. And thank goodness for this because nothing else is working. That's part of it. Um, I, hell, let's just take the lid off. Like I can tend towards like masturbation is really a safe place for me. And I can, um, really hide out from intimacy that way. I'll, I'll masturbate, I'll watch videos online. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that until that becomes the way that you're, that I am always avoiding intimacy with my partner, with my wife. That's part of my dark side. And um, I can be a bully and an asshole, and I can be quite heartless. And I do those out of fear. Um, the bullying part in particular, growing up, I, I was really smart. And I noticed that smart kids got made fun of and picked on. And so what I did was I learned how to follow and do what the cool kids did. And so I'd mimic them. And I also figured out how to, um, you know, the second someone stepped on my porch, I would cut them like, boom, you're dead. I'm going to use my wit and my intellect to eviscerate you. And so became a very effective way to stay safe. You know, someone steps on my land, I shoot them with a shotgun. But what started to happen was that it wasn't just people that were a threat. It was people that looked kind of like people that were a threat and people that had similar tendencies as the people that were a threat. And it got to the point where when I get afraid, I can I can get really cutting, not because I'm necessarily an asshole, but because that's what I've learned to do to stay safe when I'm afraid. So those are some of the parts of my dark side. Um Obviously, I'm not proud of them. And like everything, you know, there's places where obsessiveness or being able to really put someone in their place with with your words or, you know, all of that other stuff can really be a huge boon. Um, yeah. So that's my answer. Yeah, thank you. And it, it sounds like you have a great awareness about them. 
and mm. the second part of the question I'm not sure where you're at with it but how do you embrace that dark side so how do you you know the, the, the theory being that if you pretend it's not there it bubbles up and, and yeah. <laughs> catches you out um, <laughs> if you fully go all out then it's just this hedonistic life that doesn't serve you but there's a way to yeah. kind of acknowledge your dark side channel it embrace it as the best word so that it doesn't overtake you and also you're not hiding from it yeah yeah so thanks i I missed that second part um so the the obsessiveness the i mean it's basically giving my myself places in life where i actually get to love and act out and really use those parts of me to serve what i'm up to in life so like i said squash and video games I, I make time. I actually structure those into my life so that there's places where I'm allowed to be totally um, obsessive about something, like really fixate on it, really go hard. And then I also make sure that I schedule stuff on the other side of it so that it it's limited. You know, if I if I schedule going out for beers with someone and then put a squash game later on, it kind of it allows me to embrace that part of my dark side, but not go too far down the, the road. And I'm just trying to think of some of the other ones. Where does, well, where do well, I really it, embrace um, it? <laughs> I'm, I'm really hanging on this question with you. Cause I know you're, um, you, you're up for it. Um, yeah. With something like masturbation or porn and, you know, mm-hmm. I know so many guys can relate to that just being like a, I can't remember what you said, but like a go to a safe place, you know, like somewhere just like yeah. I'm bored I'm hungry. Yeah. I'm tired. I don't want intimacy. I don't. Whatever it is, it's a safe place to go to. Um, yeah. So, h- how do you embrace that? Like, how do you? And it's just more of a discussion. But like, how do you? How do you go? Well, there's that part of me. I'm going to do that. That's going to be there. It's kind of. I'm kind of disgusted by it. Now I'm speaking for myself. I'm kind of disgusted yeah, by yeah. it. Um, it's sort of in control, but not really. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you might have to help me with this because um, I'm not into that kind of thing, man. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's Jokes, hard to see. Totally am. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it's hard to see our edges a little bit. Like, um, so let me answer it this way, and we'll see if it gets there. Like, I'm very good at masturbation. Is just a form of getting my own needs met at the end of the day, mm. and I'm very, very good at getting my own needs met because that way I don't have to be messy and intimate about them. I don't have to let someone else in. So the way I embrace that is if I have needs that aren't getting, like I can, I can entertain myself by myself. Like if people aren't around, if people don't want to spend time with me or if, or whatever, I don't struggle with that. Very good at finding ways to, to pleasure myself, be it sexually or intellectually or whatever. Like I can stimulate myself. So that's what comes to mind. I mean, specifically with masturbation, how do I embrace that? I masturbate (laughs) and I, I find ways to, I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if there's something that specific. Well, I've been through phases where I've intentionally not done it, you know, or had three months of no porn or three months of no masturbation. It's super hard to do, but I did notice, you know, (laughs) no surprise, my, my sex life and my um, intimacy with my partner just went through the roof because it yeah. became the place to express that. So yes. you know, I do feel like it is, yeah, there is a way to embrace it, but not let it overtake you. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of like, I, I was just thinking about the bullying part. Like one of the, I often ask my people, are you a troll? You know what, you know what I mean by like a troll? Yeah. 
like an internet troll because that's one of the places um, I, I can kind of embrace that side of me. Like when I'm playing video games online, that's the easiest example I can think of. Like I'll be a dick sometimes because it gives me an edge. And, um, you know, maybe it is a little bit mean spirited. Um, but it also is like, I can embrace that part of me. Like actually, Adam, you can be a bit of a dick and I love that about you. Like there's a real strength in that, especially if you can bring it from love, Mm. but sometimes I can't, sometimes it's just from like, Oh, I just want to dominate you. And I'm going to bring in another way of playing this game that you, my adversary have not, you are not capable of handling. You might be technically better than me, but you can't deal with the fact that I'm going to intellectually just dominate you while we play. I'm going to yap at you and, and do that. Mm. I can tell you, you're like, I don't like that answer that much. It's not as vulnerable as I want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of podcast has this kind of range is what I was thinking, you know, from deep intellectual discussion to masturbation. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. nothing yeah. the table. This is a lot of range. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, indeed it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk again, but uh, so let, let's wrap it up here. Um, this has been one of my favorite favorite episodes, and uh, I've loved this man. Yeah, it's so fun. I love you, man, and I'm so grateful that we're um, connected, and it's uh, it's only going to get better from here. Yeah, man. Mm. So I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on, and we'll talk again soon. Well, there you have it, folks. By conversation with the wonderful Adam Quiney. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I sure did. And of course, you can go to Adam's website at evergrowthcoaching.com. And you can find Adam on all of the socials, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as Adam Quiney. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, I'd love it if you could share this around on Facebook. Go on to iTunes. We need more ratings and reviews on iTunes. So if you could take 30 seconds now to jump onto iTunes and give the show a rating and a review, I'd be forever grateful. And next week I'll be back for episode 20. Wow, episode 20 of the Nathan Seawood Show. Personal Conversations with Powerful Men.